Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning and uh, welcome to our podcast. Uh, my name is Uma Dharap and I'm a PGY2 resident in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the UT McGovern Medical School um, in Houston. And joining us this morning is Dr. Radha Kurupulu. Um, she is a clinical assistant professor, also in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School in Houston. So welcome, Dr. Kurupalu, and uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your time with us this morning and uh, a lot of your wisdom with us. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me here today. All right. So um, this morning, uh, you shared with us uh, the results uh, um, of your study um, comparing outcomes of mechanical ventilation with high versus moderate tidal volumes in spinal cord injury patients. And I, I really found uh, that uh, presentation so enlightening um, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, so thank you for sharing the study with us. But before we dive into the study itself, um, uh, would you tell us about yourself, please? All right. Well, um, I did uh, my residency in University of Kentucky, PMNR. We didn't have any vent patients over there. So my vent exposure to SCI patients was when I came to do my fellowship at University of Texas uh, here at, and when I did my fellowship at Tier Memorial Hermann. So it was very exciting. But before I did my residency, I used to work in Johns Hopkins University, uh, actually a clinical coordinator for a program for uh, early rehab program in the ICU. So as a part of that program, I had to look into their ventilator settings because I had to wait uh, until patients reach certain settings before we can start the rehab. So in general, I'm, that gave me, and I worked there for two, three years, uh, you know, a lot of idea about ventilators and what settings are used in general. And actually, the person ArtsNet trial that I was talking about in my study uh, and the main author of that paper, Dr. Roy Brower, was the MICU director at that time. And I worked with him very closely. And he used to tell us all the time about his studies and all that stuff. So it was imprinted in my brain, like lower tidal volume. <laughs> so when I first came here, um, that was the, the second vent exposure, you know, uh, because I didn't have any ICU rotation during my categorical year. And I saw that, my gosh, we are using very high tidal volumes here. And I was it was totally opposite because 5 to 6 cc per kg ideal body weight. And here we are using 15, 20 cc per kg ideal body weight. 
And not only that, during my first year as an attending, I don't know how much attention I paid during my fellowship, but during attending, I noticed our patients do develop a lot of pneumonia. And then most of the times it's attributed to uh, secretions. And of course, they have impairment, you know. So I wasn't very happy with that explanation. And then I, also because of my interest in clinical research, I started doing a master's in clinical research program with UT Health. That's an excellent program, by the way, if any of you are interested. So there I had to do a literature review as a part of one of the course. Um, so I chose because this question was really burning and bothering me. I'm like, okay, let me look into what's happening in the uh, SCI people. How much evidence do we have? So I, I ended up finding only two papers in SCI. So I can't really do a literature review and you know meta-analysis. So I ended up doing in non-SCI people with no ARDS. So I said, let's at least because every time I said something, my people here at TIER would say, oh, our patients do not have ARDS. We can give them higher tidal volume. Their data is about ARDS. I said, okay, let me at least look into what happens into non-ARDS. So, well, that's what led me to do all these things. So that's maybe a little bit longer introduction than what you expected. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's fabulous because uh, that leads me into my next question, um, which I had from my ICU rotation uh, during my categorical year last year. So, um, what, uh, of course, you talked about uh, us using higher tidal volumes uh, at tier um, compared to ICU. So, uh, I was just curious to know uh, what the differences are between managing a ventilator in an ICU setting versus an inpatient rehabilitation unit. So obviously I'm not an ICU expert, so I can't tell you much about that, but also depends on different pathologies, right? Uh, people in ICU get admitted with all kinds of things, ARDS, severe pneumonia, cystic fibrosis and all that stuff. But in general, since the ARDSNET trial uh, was published, people use lower tidal volume. So the, I think the practice before that using a I mean, you know, there's really no set definition, but people used to do 8 to 10 cc, and some places you will see 8, eight to 12 cc per kg predicted body weight, and that was a standard practice. But when the ARTSNET trial was published, most of the ICUs started using lower tidal volumes. Actually, it was interesting. During my fellowship, when we used to get consults, even during attending in ICU, they will still put the... Um, a spinal injury patient with a lower tidal volume because that's a practice. But remember, their cuff is inflated and they use peep there. Okay. Um, so we used to actually, I used to go and fight with them based on what I was taught at SCI. Like, hey, you guys are doing wrong. Look at my data. And there was one time actually my co-fellow had a big, uh, big argument when with one of the pulmonary fellow. What are you teaching me? I'm an expert in this. So this this controversy is always there. And as I said, in our SCI guidelines, we do get them uh, deflate the cuff so that patients can talk, right? With the inflated cuff, you cannot use a uh, passimir valve, right? So, and right. they cannot talk. So, if, if we think it's very important for, you know, for patients' perspective to deflate the cuff, and we wean them off. So, once you deflate the cuff, you... I mean, I mean, some people, you know, recently I did a survey on mechanical ventilation settings. It was an international study. Some people said that I deflate the cuff and we put them on very high peep of 15. But we really don't know once the circuit is open if you're really giving them any peep. Right. So you can't really. 
give them any PAPE. Um, so anyway, so that's the standard practice. And in general, as I said, the guidelines itself tells you to use more than 15 cc. And I think in the most of the model systems, that's what people use. And I'm still analyzing the data from mechanical ventilation survey. I will get more idea how is the practice all over the world and which I should be publishing soon as well. Right now, I'm in the analysis phase. Actually, I did a survey where I sent out the survey about what settings they use, whether they use the PEEP, deflate the cup or not. And I sent it out to all over the world, uh, to both SCI and acute care. So I can't wait to analyze the data. So that's the main difference. Right. Uh, that, should, that should be some very interesting uh, analysis once you start getting some response. Yeah. Um, so, um, would you say um, then that the reason uh, we use higher tidal volumes in our SCI population is that we uh, eventually deflate cuffs uh, and our goals are different? Uh, would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, the reason I should have included that in my um, PowerPoint too. So, the reason we use higher tidal volumes, so what's happening with patient with a spinal cord injury, uh, somebody at cervical level of injury, Right? It's not only makes your arms and legs weak, it also makes your breathing muscles weaker as well, right? So diaphragm is innervated by C3, C4, C5, then you have your intercostal muscles, you know. Um, so all of them, they're getting weak too, depending on completeness of your injury and the level of injury. So you cannot take a deeper breath, right? So your ability to take a deeper breath is limited. Uh, and in general, their lungs are healthy unless they had a pneumothorax or they developed something else, right? So, and then also they have unopposed parasympathetic activity, right? Like if somebody right. has a cervical level injury, vagus is totally intact, but your control of sympathetic system is gone. So unopposed parasympathetic activity also causes bronchospasm, hypermore secretions. So those are the things people, uh, you know, so now when you cannot uh, breathe deeper, you're very high risk of having atelectasis, right? right. More secretions, mucus plugging, more atelectasis. So uh, I think the thought process was the based on the biological plausibility that if you give the higher tidal volume, you expand those lungs, you keep those lungs inflated, you know, and probably, you know, prevent atelectasis that can help them to wean off. So that is the thought process. And not only that, when you deflate the cuff, so in general, we don't know it for sure because I've talked to both pulmonologists and different people. So Dale Needham, who was my mentor, I spoke to him and I asked him, when we deflate the cuff, in general, our thought process is, so you, I don't know if you have seen on the tubing, we measure the exhaled tidal volume. Mm -hmm. So when you deflate the cuff, when the volume is coming out of the you know, lungs, there is some leaking around the trach. So what you are measuring, the exhaled tidal volume, is less than what you are giving them in. But we assume that that's the tidal volume they're getting in. But when going in, we don't know if there is a leaking or no leaking. In general, when the volume is going in, some people believe that they're getting that full volume. So, But we are assuming that when we deflate the cuff, there is a leak and it is safer to increase the tidal volume and give them higher because there is some leak anyways. I see. Um, so uh, now that we are talking about tidal volumes, um, uh, can you give us an idea of uh, how do you define like a low versus moderate versus high uh, tidal volume? So I wish there was a definition. I was looking for those definitions in the literature so that I can uh, reference it with my paper. 
but unfortunately there is no clear cut definitions but i'll tell you what people have been in the studies they have been referring to so in general lower tidal volumes is less than 6 cc in most of the studies in some studies maybe 6 to 8 so less than 6 to 8 you can say they are referring to lower tidal volume and this less than 6 to 8 cc per kg predicted body weight not the current body weight and in general standard or moderate tidal volume in the literature is like any it, it again in each study is different but usually the range is from 8 to 12 cc per kg ideal body weight and the higher tidal volumes in general anything more than 14 or 15 cc per kg uh, ideal body weight that's what in the research studies they have been referring to i see um so also i was curious about another thing uh, when uh, you were um looking at uh, all these patients at tier and um looking at what tidal volumes they were receiving um how at that time at least how uh, was that determination made um about how much to give a patient whether to give somebody moderate or high yeah so it uh, varied a lot you know first of all when i first started i saw there was a magic number of 1000 or 1200 cc perspective mm-hmm. of their body weight we weren't even considering ideal body weight or you know predicted body weight first of all there was just one magic number for everybody the 1000 to 1200 cc and then sometimes i think we were looking into current body weight but i spoke to respiratory therapists they said they do have a calculator when they put it in the ventilator settings so it tells you predicted body weight so maybe they were looking into that for but as far as i know and i have spoken to our attendings too i don't think we were looking into ideal body weight or predicted body weight it was either magical number of 1000 to 1200 cc or maybe the current body weight or like you know so that's what how we were doing i see i see um and then um what uh, outcomes did you notice uh, with your study um comparing moderate versus high tidal volumes so since you know as i said the prevention of pneumonia is so important because that's associated with reduce uh, uh neuro recovery and also higher risk of uh, death um you know uh, 10 years after up to 10 years after sci i looked into pneumonia episodes of pneumonia and then also i came up with a composite outcome as such as pneumonia should not be the only thing because what if patients were transferred from here to acute care and then they develop pneumonia there right so i also looked into how many people were transferred out uh, due to respiratory complications i didn't even include the pe other than pe and then how many people were not able to be off the ventilator even though they reached the vital capacity required vital capacity so these were the main uh, primary outcomes all the respiratory outcomes and then i also looked into the how long it took us for to get the patients ready for weaning how long it took us to wean them once they were ready and total ventilator days and i also looked at the hospital length of stay discharge you know vital capacity gained but the primary outcomes were episodes of pneumonia and um, adverse events incidents of adverse pulmonary adverse events i see and then now uh, what were your uh, conclusions Uh, based on observations so both it an adjusted and adjusted analysis we found that the risk of pneumonia is approximately four times higher in the higher tidal volume group 
uh, though the baseline characters characteristics were not different, they were pretty same. The only thing uh, we did find, though it was not statistically significant, that uh, age was median age was people were a little younger in moderate VT group, um, but the risk of pneumonia was four times higher uh, in higher tidal volume group, and the odds of developing a pulmonary adverse event was five times higher in higher tidal volume group compared to moderate tidal volume group, and which was significant actually. Uh, and we didn't find any difference in uh, pre-weaning days or weaning days or total ventilator days. And again, it's not like, you know, we had, we don't know uh, the how, how much sample size is required to find that difference, but they definitely the trend, when you look at the Craig study and our study, the days even required to get them to weaning was higher, longer in the higher tidal volume group in the moderate compared to moderate PT group. Um, so those were my main findings. And then besides, I also find that people who were getting moderate VT group, the higher percentage of them were able to go home, actually, mm -hmm. um, but compared to the uh, higher tidal volume group. And higher tidal volume group, less people, less percentage of the people were able to go home. More people required the SNF and LTAC placement. I see. That's that's very interesting. Um, so, uh, based uh, on uh, on these findings, um, have our protocols uh, changed in any way uh, at tier uh, regarding what tidal volumes we are using? So, the protocols. I don't know if we have changed or anything, but the practice has definitely changed. Uh, I started talking to you know a, a medical director and a respiratory manager and RB, both of them, and I have included as a part of the team too when I was doing mechanical ventilation survey. And the future, they will be part of my future randomized control trial as well because it's very important. So, as I started talking to them. In 2019, the practice was already changed. Actually, I looked into 2019 data. There were only two patients, actually, that entire year got more than 15. And that was also the max was 16 cc. And the incidence of pneumonia significantly decreased, you know, uh, in the 2019. So, yes, our practice has definitely changed. We are not using the crazy tidal volumes of, you know, 17, 18, 19 anymore, but I still think we have a long way to go. I have presented uh, these findings internally. I'm also presenting in ASKIP actually uh, in September, and but I still think it's too early. We need a big randomized control trial to, to, to uh, see what's the true magic number. I don't want people to get stuck with, okay, less than 15 is okay. We still need to know. In the meanwhile, I would recommend definitely less than 15, but I think we still need to find a lot of work needs to be done. Like, is PEEP safe or not? Because some people are arguing we need to deflate the cuff. The quality of life is important, but does the deflating cuff, you know, increases the risk of aspiration? I don't know. Is it even that? Is that the reason they're taking longer time to get them off the vein? We don't know. So we have to look into all those factors as well. Sure, sure. And now possibly uh, then comparing. Uh, the incidence of pneumonias or unplanned acute care transfers before and after determining the um, time volume of 15 or lower. That might be a good comparison as well. Right. So, of course, you can look into that, but I don't know. Um, well, as I said, when I looked into that, I definitely looked at because we have the number of acute care transfers too. 
So I already have that data. Okay. And then the other thing, the funny thing is that hospital looks into how they determine what's pneumonia, even though we are treating that as a pneumonia and we have diagnosed them as pneumonia because most of these people are coming on tube feeding. So they assume that that pneumonia is due to risk of aspiration and not necessarily ventilator associated pneumonia. That's why in my paper, I didn't say ventilator associated pneumonia. I included any pneumonia. Okay, in that. So it will be interesting because you might not find any pneumonias. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Um, uh, and uh, one one aspect of your presentation this morning that uh, my, uh, piqued my curiosity, uh, we were talking about how um, uh, physiologically, uh, when all of us breathe, our resting breath is uh, shallower than when you're walking around or when you're doing some energetic physical exercise. Um, so uh, patients who are on a ventilator, they have this set tidal volume that they receive. They don't have this increase and decrease in a 24 hour time frame. So um, do you feel that there might be any benefit or um, has there been thought to this um, to mimic the physiological cycle in a, in a healthy uh, human being? Yeah. So I yeah I we spoke about that as well. That you know why are we giving them such a higher tidal volume every day? Let's say, let's say I'm an SCI patient and my vital capacity is thousand cc. Okay. Right now when I'm on ventilator, you know, right now when I'm on ventilator, you are giving me whatever thousand cc, twelve hundred cc. Once I'm off the ventilator. Am I breathing 1,000 cc 24 hours? So it doesn't make sense that we are trying to help them to prevent atelectasis because once they're off the ventilator, they're going to do what their capacity is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't breathe your full vital capacity all the time. So that doesn't make sense either. But we did talk about like maybe that's the thing we have to come up with a good protocol. There is so much we need to know and test. So one of the things we were talking, maybe we should keep them at lower one with the P. So P keeps... To alveoli keeps it inflated, right? Partially inflated all the time. And then give them deeper breaths. Maybe, you know, in the vent, we can do that. Like maybe every four hours, how we do the pressure relief, they just mm -hmm. give them a deeper breath to inflate the lungs or do lung volume recruitment. They do a lot of places they do actually, they keep them at lower tidal volume and they do something called lung volume recruitment methodology. Different people do it differently. Uh, here, you know, um, what we do, we actually use the AMBO bag and we inflate the lung, we do the breath stacking. So there are a lot of breathing exercises. Even when the patients come off the ventilator, we can teach the patients to breath stack. And you know how we tell them to do incentive spirometry? Right, right. That also yes. helps to prevent atelectasis. I tell all my patients, all cervical injuries, that's, that's something you have to do it every day. So, yes, we have thought about that too. Um, incorporating, you know, giving higher tidal volume because in general, even us, I don't know if you notice it or not, maybe you notice somebody today, okay? Even though we are sitting every, and I forgot uh, what's the normal, like every eight to 10 minutes, we take a deeper breath, we call side breath, right? Yeah. So even if we are sitting, we also tend to take a little bit deeper breath. So that's normal physiology. Yes, we should definitely look into that to see if that strategy is better and preventing atelectasis. All right. So I'm going to change uh, track um, uh, to a slightly different um, um, mode of questions. Uh, and so you, you are an awesome mentor and uh, yeah. I'm a PG by two. 
about to start my first um, inpatient rehabilitation. So um, I'm on call first night ever. Um, what are some tips or tricks uh, that you can share with me um, regarding ventilators, such as what can I get called on and what do I do about it? So usually most common call on the ventilator is somebody is desaturating, okay, while they're on ventilator, you know, people are requiring more oxygen requirement, you know. So somebody acutely starts desaturating, the, you know, they will give you a call, sometimes even the rapid response. Usually, a most common cause is mucus plugging. But first, you know, you make sure the ventilator tubing is all connected. And remember, your respiratory therapist is your friend. They know a lot more than us. They've been doing this years, day and night. So help, you know, take the help of your respiratory therapist, make sure the ventilator, you know, is all connected. And the second thing is suctioning, you know, you suction quickly and see if that helps. Um, most of the times the suctioning takes care of it, the mucus plugging, but if it's a significant big mucus plug, then that's when we ha might have to send out because that part of the lung is gonna collapse if we don't open it up. So that is in general, the most common, uh, Thing that you uh, get called on. Actually, I do a presentation where I go over the cases. And then anxiety, you know, most of the times when the patient get, gets admitted the same day from the acute care hospital, they come on the lower tidal volumes, right? And then right. we come here, we change, and sometimes they come on a different mode of ventilation also. So right. Teams I've seen. And then now you're here, you're taking the control of any breathing from them and you're putting them on AC, assist control. So even though patients are able to breathe partially, we still then go ahead and put them on to assist control. So they're super anxious. It could be many things that reason they're anxious, but that's another call actually that you get called. The patient is so anxious and anxiety itself can increase the work of breathing and have them desaturate. Um, so those are the calls. So sometimes you go back and see uh, what's happening. If you need to decrease it, put them back on the inflate the cuff to reduce the anxiety, give them some time. That's okay. And talk to your respiratory therapist. Boost bar really helps with anxiety and that's what we use. Uh, you can start them at five milligram three times a day. They usually don't use benzos because it causes the respiratory depression. Um, so those are the things uh, you can do to help with the anxiety. And besides, you can get called on ventilator patient excessive secretions, right? right. So then you look at the, what are they getting? What is a free, you know, make sure they're using mechanical encephalator, exephalator. Let's say if they're calling that, uh, they're having excessive secretions. If they're not on uh, MIE, you can tell the therapist to do MIE. If the secretions are thick, you know, mucamist or an acetylcysteine uh, nep or uh, hypertonic saline. Those are the neps we use to make the secretions thin immediately. And then after you give that nep, you tell them to suction or use the MIE to get the stuff out. Um, and there are some oral medications too, which you can use, but oral medications usually have side effects, you know, because they're anticholinergic. Um, so in general, don't use oral medications if they have excessive secretions to reduce the amount of secretion, because then the secretions will become thick unless they're copious and watery thin. Okay, in that right. case, you can try it. But in general, that can make actually secretions things dry mouth and can cause the mucus plugging. So that's why you mostly, you know, try to uh, suction it. That's the method. 
and the guaifenesin can help also to thin the secretion so that you can use for the people who have thick secretions and make sure their water intake is appropriate. There were some times when I was attending, I would find that they're not getting en enough, uh, you know, uh, water because most of them are not tube feeding. You adjust hydration as well, right? So um, those are some of the common things that you see. But as I said, your respiratory therapist is your friend. Make sure, you know, uh, you touch base with them and talk about different things. And you can always call your attending. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, what are the, uh, some of the study resources that we can use uh, for self-study? Uh, for just the respiratory complications in SCI? Yes. Okay. Um, so in general, the PDA guidelines, other than the recommendation for more than 15 cc, it's a pretty comprehensive for mm -hmm. uh, respiratory management in SCI. Kharshpun uh, book chapter is also a good gu uh, guide. And then, you know, there are so many wonderful papers published about respiratory issues and everything. Um, so those are the some of the, you know, guides that you can use from the book, you know, and then PVA guidelines. Actually, PVA guidelines is pretty comprehensive, um, that one. And you can always, if you have a particular question about like, okay, which method is better, mist or something, I usually just go PubMed do the search to see if there's any study to that can answer my particular question uh, because usually the data in the books is very old, right? It takes right. five years to write a book and publish it, and the data that it has is much older than that. So the papers that you can rely, I think that's the best method of, but you have to know how to uh, evaluate a paper, though. That's very important. We cannot take it blindly, but there are some very good review papers done by people in the field of SCI. All right. Well, um, I, that brings me to uh, all my questions. I was able to go uh, and ask you, and I really thank you for your patience uh, with answering all of them. Uh, and thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. Uh, I would also thank uh, all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Um, this is Uma Dharap, and uh, we are going to sign off at this time. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Uma. Bye. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. 
We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.